Welcome to another Say No KNOW.org podcast. We discuss all things drug related, including policy, crime, and research. We talk to professionals, researchers, and people with lived experience and discuss ideas on how we can make things just a little bit better. The Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse has supplied funding to allow this podcast to take place. Our Say No initiative is part of the Chris and Prairies Network. Please check out all the incredible work they are doing in the field of addiction and research at chrismprairies.ca. Again, that's chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed within our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. The views in this podcast also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization I am associated with. And the same goes for all of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head over to our Facebook page under Facebook backslash say no org or tweet us at say no org. Okay, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Say No Drug Education podcast. Today, my guest is Bill Bogart. He's the author of an incredible book entitled Off the Street. So thanks for joining us today, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Great. So, so your book is is really about research based drug policy, and one of my favorite things about this book is that it's so well researched. And you had a there's a ton of references in the back that I was able to go in and refer to and find some additional information on. So, what what is it that gave you this passion or this idea to to write a book like Off the Street? I've long been interested in the actual impact of law when. We pass laws or the Supreme Court of Canada makes a decision about something. To what extent are the underlying social, political, economic issues that are sought to be addressed actually affected by these changes in the law? About uh, 15 years ago, I wrote a book uh, called Consequences, The Impact of Law and Its Complexity. And one of the case studies was smoking and I became very, very interested in how law and and shifting norms really brought about a big positive public health change, and that is, of course, the reduction in the rates of smoking, which has you know been a, a terrific public health success story. So I, I I sort of kept smoking in the back of my mind for a number of years as I went and did other things, and then. I decided that consumption, how we consume, would be a very interesting field to study the impact of law. So I've, in the last eight years, I've done three books, one on gambling, one on obesity, and then this last one, Off the Street, Legalizing Drugs on Illicit Substances. You know, the thing that struck me as I started looking at consumption, which is something that I think people are interested in because we all consume, I was struck by how drugs are really the outliers. You know, when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to tobacco, when it comes to gambling, uh, when it comes more recently to non-nutritious food, we use the criminal law very sparingly. Right. We don't. We don't think that the criminal law is really the answer to change people's habits of consumption, but instead what we do is use the regulatory state, taxes, restriction of advertising, mandatory warnings, restrictions in terms of use in public places, et cetera, et cetera, to try to get 
people to change their behavior and try to bolster changing attitudes and norms, right? So that, you know, with smoking, smoking went from this very glamorous, sexy activity to something that most people view as a kind of dangerous, filthy, expensive habit. So then, yeah, that really brought me to to drugs and to examine the extent to which we seem to be so glued to the idea that criminalizing use of illicit substances was the way to get people not to actually use drugs. And, you know, as I began to research the topic, I realized that that simply wasn't the case. It had not worked. And that indeed, uh, over the last several decades, the consumption of drugs, at least some of them, have actually risen despite all this prohibition. And then um, halfway, about halfway through the book, of course, Mr. Trudeau decided that cannabis would be legalized and regulated. So that gave, gave a whole boost to the book in terms of, oh, look, we actually are going to have an example where, where we're going to have this shift. Um, and as you and your listeners know, we're not there quite yet, but we should be there at some point in 2018. Great. So what what is it that, I mean, you, you chose to bring up um, or and study the areas of obesity, smoking, and then you're kind of linking, uh, you know, the uses of, of drugs into that same context. So what can we learn and how do, how do they connect to, to one to the other, I should say? Well, I think we can learn that getting people to adopt healthy habits is a steep uphill climb, Right. that there are sorts of all sorts of complexities involved. You know, as I said, the one public health success story we have is with tobacco. But to some extent, that's because tobacco is so very toxic and so very habit forming. Right. And we finally got the message through to people, including kids. And that's a real success story because we've got smoking amongst kids down to about 7%. And we know that if you don't smoke before the age of 20, you're very unlikely to ever be a, um, a lifetime smoker. So over the next decade or two, we'll see rates fall even further because the kids won't be smoking as adults. Yeah, I, I use that example perfectly in, in a lot of the presentations I do to, to youth. And I think the, the latest Health Canada study that I looked at, I mean, it's survey-based, but they had around 5%. So, I mean, this is the, I think this is exactly the success story that we're, we're looking for. Right. But at the same time, we have to recognize that took 40 years. Oh, right. You know, right. So shifting behavioral patterns maybe in, in many contexts, but certainly in terms of consumption, is a long, tough, complicated battle. But, and that, that goes for, for gambling, that goes for non-nutritious foods, alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. But what we think we do know is that criminalization, by and large, is not part of that shift that if you look at the studies around illicit drug use, use and criminal sanctions are not very closely related. 
like like the governments can impose very very strict criminal penalties on use and trafficking and that does by and large does not curtail either oh i see you know i always say in these interviews i i want drugs legalized not because i think they're harmless right I am very aware of the harm they can do. Right. I very much want people to be aware, and I very much want people to either not use them at all, in the case of tobacco, because there's no safe limit, or, or to use them, as in the case of cannabis and alcohol, very alive to the fact that they can, under certain circumstances, be dangerous to health, can induce uh, patterns of dependence, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is that the criminal law is not the way to go. Criminalization of drugs has done nothing to curtail the use of drugs, at least in many instances, has given rise to a multinational billion-dollar industry run by the criminal element. They don't pay taxes. They sell often tainted substances that poison or even kill people. We aren't able to implement a full range of harm reduction strategies that are targeted at either keeping people away from drugs entirely or at least warning them of the dangers so they use them with as much wisdom as they can muster. Right. Right. So, you know, let's take the opioids and, you know, set aside the, the ter- terrific problems that have been abused because opioids were wrongly prescribed. They were pushed by a pharmaceutical industry that fabricated this myth that they were very useful for chronic pain when, in fact, they weren't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, heroin, just take the heroin. This, Street-grade it, heroin. It, it, or are yeah. you referring to prescription I mean, opiates? You know, we have to warn people, look, this is not a moral thing. Right. You're not a bad person if you use heroin. But please understand, it is extremely easy to overdose, particularly if you use it with other substances like alcohol. And so please ask yourself why you would want to use this drug. Well, I don't think it's a choice for most people. I mean, a lot of the anecdotal research that I've done and, and talking to my informants and people that are injecting drugs, like that's such an extreme behavior that they've had some extreme trauma in their life that they're resorting to actually shoving a needle into their vein. It's this isn't done. This isn't done at a party. Yeah, no, no. And I'd say if the person has been traumatized, then they're in very difficult situations. They need a lot of support. But one of the supports I hope we can give them is like this non-judgmental questioning that says, look, what is it in your, your life that you want to use heroin to try to blot it out? Is there some way that, that we can support you that you can find other ways of addressing what has happened to you? And and when people do use heroin, then warn them, look, it is extremely easy to overdose. And, and therefore, you know, um, you should be going to a safe injection site and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, as I said, I, I always come back to it's, it's not about ju- judgment. It's not about saying they're bad people. It's about 
think, why are you using this drug? Is there some way, do you understand what the dangers are? Is there some way we can support you so that you deal with the issues that you have in your life other than through drug use? use? But if you, so long as you're still using the drug, then we want to help you use it in the safest way possible. Exactly. So I'm glad you brought up safe injection sites. So do you feel, I mean, because based on your book, I mean, it's obvious that uh, giving somebody a, an untainted, a regulated product is safer. Do you think a safe inje- like a, a safe injection site without providing a clean substance is that a solution, or or is that just a band aid? Well, or? it's part. It's it's partly a solution. Do you know what I mean? It's better than people just going and and injecting in a back alley with. It, they don't know what they're putting into their veins, so it's far better that they go to a, a place where there are nurses and doctors so that if they overdose, they can immediately receive treatment. And, you know, my understanding is most of these safe injection sites are now testing the drugs before the people use them. So they're intercepting tainted substances. But if you're saying to me, wouldn't it be better that the drugs be provided so that, 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 that the health professionals that are operating the clinic know exactly what the person is going to be using. Yeah, I understand. I I, I agree with that. See, I think what's happening is the opioid crisis is forcing us in this, this, this emergency context to face drug usage. Right. Definitely. And, and we're, we're that the silver lining of the very, very dark cloud of the opioid crisis is that we're, we are actually moving to a context of legalization. You feel like we're moving that in that direction? Well, safe injection sites. You're, you're, what you're doing at that site is a criminal act, but for the fact that there's an exemption. Right. The, the hydro, uh, uh, the, the disp- dispensing machines that they're going to be experimenting with through the BC Center for Disease Control, they're going to be dispensing hydromorphone, oh, wow. which is an opioid, but it's, it's going to be safe, it's going to be clean, the use is going to be monitored. Well, that's legalization. Right, yeah, the, exactly. The, 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 the dependent person is, is getting a drug under the control of the government and using it in what five years ago, where all of those elements would have been illegal. Yeah, exactly. Right? So nobody, and certainly Mr. Trudeau, doesn't want to say this is legalization by increments. But in fact, that is what is happening. And we should just haul it out and discuss it and recognize that whatever the difficulties and complexities, the opioid plague is forcing us to go that route. But that route has has a great deal to say for us, right, in terms of, of controlling the, the negatives around drug usage. Well, and not, not only to the individual, but the cost on society is, is huge. I mean, addiction, dealing with a, a community dealing with, a, with addiction and a large population that is addicted to any substance is very expensive. And it causes a lot of chaos to neighborhoods, a crime. I mean, that's the only means of, of finding your illicit substance is funding your habits through crime. So I, I think the spinoff I'm hoping that they see in British Columbia is a, is a reduction in overall cost and chaos to the community. 
Do you think that's a possibility? I was on um, CTV uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, your morning with Ben Maroney. We were talking about the money laundering that's going on in BC around the opioid, the fentanyl trade. And of course, I pointed out to him, where you have drug trafficking, you almost always have money laundering because they, the thugs have to have some way to clean up the act. And he said, well, you know, what can the government do to prevent money laundering? And I looked at him, I said, they could legalize drugs. Exactly. And, and Ben sort of arched it back and sort of got the message. It was actually a very good interview, um, at least on his part. I hope I gave him what he wanted. But the, my point to you is, is if we legalize drugs, we confront the thugs. Yeah. Right? That, like we, we, we take that out of the business away from them. So these, and, you know, we'd have to have a whole lot more of them, but these dispensing machines... The people who are going and getting the hydromorphone tablets are not buying drugs on the street. Well, if you're not buying drugs on the street, you're confronting the drug traffickers. And I'm not talking about the, you know, the, the street people who, you know, are doing things that they shouldn't be doing, but they're desperate because they've got uh, dependent. I'm talking about the kingpins that are making millions and millions off the backs of people. Right. Right. You would want to stop this for no other reason than the despicable behavior of these people who make millions, pay no taxes, yeah. and care not for what they're selling to people so that, they, you know, you get these the poison that is fentanyl. And, they, and then they sell to children, too, because there's nothing to regulate them to stop doing that. So one one of the things I really uh, I really appreciate in your book because I mean I have these discussions with a lot of a lot of friends and colleagues about you know moving towards a, a world of regulation. What I really appreciate is you kind of broke down it's that it's it's not and I mean I haven't been using this in in my uh, discussions but I'm going to start. It it's not whether this, it's not just kind of a blanket approach like drugs are illegal now and boom now drugs are legal and all drugs are treated the same. So can you, can you, can you kind of uh, give a bit of insight onto what, you know, what would be some examples of how we would, how we could treat, you know, different drugs like cocaine, marijuana, opiates, you know, maybe some psychedelics, like what, how, how, what would be an ideal world for you? Well, you know, I'm a lawyer, not a, a health professional. So uh, you know, what the world would look like. Yeah, if you told me that first, we probably wouldn't be doing this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> oh, poor lawyers. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but uh, you see, at least this lawyer has the sense to say in answering this very good question you're asking, look, you need a lot of wise heads right. to create that world. And the state, that, uh, such, the, the state of circumstances that we'd roll out would, should not be led by lawyers. They should be led by health professionals, community workers, folks like you who've had real experience. But to answer your question as best I can, you know, I think a good we know we can just talk right now about three different drugs, opioids, tobacco, and cannabis. Right. Right. So, so as we move towards cannabis, its regulation roughly is going to be like tobacco and alcohol, but even closer to alcohol. And what I mean by that is with tobacco, what we say to people is, look, 
this drug is so toxic and so prone to depend, making people dependent that you should just not use it at all, right? Like it, it really is, please do not use this drug at all. Because if you use it, your de- chance of becoming dependent on it is about 80%. And while the levels of acute toxicity are extremely low, like overdosing on tobacco, right. the levels of chronic toxicity are very high. Right. You're very likely to die from lung cancer or euph- uh, uh, emphysema or, or whatever. With alcohol, we say moderate use is probably okay, right? Right. So we give standards. We say about 15 units for men, about seven units for women. The difference is largely because alcohol is very related to breast cancer. Women tend to get breast cancer much more more frequently than men. So women have to be even that much more careful about alcohol use than, than men do. But if you're otherwise healthy and you're not prone to, uh, you don't have particular health frailties, uh, for example, pregnant women should not use alcohol, you, moderate use seems to be okay. But we warn people constantly about it should be moderate use. Once you get beyond those limits, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble, including, of course, alcoholism, drug-impaired driving, et cetera, et cetera. Well, cannabis, I think, is going to look a lot like that, right? Moderate use is okay, but beware of drug-impaired driving, beware of use that starts to get you into to a pattern of dependence. So if you're smoking, let's say, three or four joints a month, you're pro- probably just fine. If you're smoking three or four joints a day, you have to ask yourself a lot of t- hard questions. Right. And same fo- focus on kids b- with cannabis and alcohol. Really, kids, think about not using it at all during your teen years because you're not adults in small bodies. They, they, these drugs affect you in ways that that we're, we're unclear about. And, and, and we also know that the later the onset, the less likely that you'll become dependent on the drug. So that's alcohol, cannabis, tobacco, opioids. I think, you know, I, I, what I said, I mean, the, the silver lining in the very, very dark cloud of the opioid plague is that it's really forcing us to a route of legalization. And so, you know, I think the day will come when we say, and and it's like the exchange we had several minutes ago, uh, look, you really should stay away from this stuff because it's so easy to overdose. But we recognize the reality is that some people are going to use it because they've been traumatized or or whatever. And so here are the constraints around it. You know, don't do it alone. Don't do it in, in conjunction with other drugs like alcohol. And, you know, if you're somebody that doesn't have a lot of personal and social supports, maybe go to what you know, will be the the next generation of a safe injection site. Okay. And we'll you'll be able to get the drug there, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, once again, the message that I, I 
keep saying in my books is it's permit but discourage, right? We're permitting it in the sense of we're not making criminals out of these people. We're confronting these thugs that run the illicit market, but we are actively discouraging harmful use in a non-judgmental way. And we would have the financial ability to do that, which right now we, I feel we don't. We would have the financial ability to do that, and we should have the financial ability to do it because... That's the humane and civilized thing to do. But as you quite quite rightly pointed out, you know, we would have, if we legalized the drugs, we would have a lot of resources that go into criminalizing and prosecuting users now that we could divert into health and social services. Right. And also the amount that we spend incarcerating people. Uh, would become available for, as I said, social and health services. But, you know, is this a a road that we'll probably take? You know, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Will it take a couple of decades? It may well do that. Although I think with the opioids, it's really pushing us along. You know, as you, you and your listeners will know, Vancouver City Council about a week ago passed a motion calling for the decriminalization of all drugs. And that's a cry for help, right? That's Vancouver saying, look, we are in the midst of an epidemic that last year in BC claimed more lives than suicides, homicides, and traffic accidents combined. And the statistics indicate that those, that level is not going down, despite some of the interventions that we've already tried. So we have to be more aggressive. We have to confront this notion that the usage of this drug has to be governed more by public authorities. And, you know, so the example I keep going back to is these high dispensing machines that are going to dispense hydromorphone tablets. Yeah, exactly. So what what could we do in uh, in a in a perfect world? So if we're going to call to deregulate all drugs, what about a drug like uh, cocaine or like more of some of the party drugs like the the sin the synthetics? Or yeah, the... yeah, I, and th- that's an interesting uh, question because to legalize a drug, you have to have a, a legal source, right? So with cannabis, we're going to have legal sources because the, all these licensed producers are busy growing crops to beat the band and, you know, trying to outmaneuver each other and see who could make the most money out of it and blah, blah, blah. With heroin, uh, we do have a legal source of medical-grade heroin because there are countries like Turkey that produce it and, you know, we Health Canada has arranged for importation of it, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, we really don't have a legal access to cocaine. Like we we don't grow we don't grow opium plants in this country as far as I know, so you, you know you'd you mean you'd co- have co- to coca, have coca plants. Sorry, coca. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. You're quite right. Sorry, yeah. coca. Um, so you, you know we the cocaine thing is an interesting situation. I mean, we'd have to have a legal source. So we're either going to have to have other countries that will legalize coca and the production of cocaine, or we're going to have to figure out a way to do this in this country, right? So there are just sort of practical 
aspects to this that we're going to have to confront and, and overcome. But, you know, every use is a, is a use that we, we need to, to grapple with. But the statistics that I'm aware of, I mean, once you get past alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, and the opioids, like the level, the, the rates of use fall very, very considerably. Like we're down to single digits. So even, even other, even other substances. Yes. Oh. So my, my point is not that that means, oh, well, we don't have to worry about it. Right. But my, my point is if, you know, if we tackle cannabis, alcohol and, and tobacco are already legal and regulated. If we tackle cannabis use and opioid use, we've, tackle the main chunks of drug use in this society. Well, that's fascinating because right right now, um, I bring it up on, on the podcast lots, but uh, methamphetamine is not talked um, very much about on a national level. But I think that that is a that that's a true ep- epidemic. But I mean, people aren't dropping dead from methamphetamine; they're they're winding up in the psych center. But crime and chaos associated to the methamphetamine trade, I would say is 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 more more connected than any other uh, a drug and the and the criminal acts. But okay, well, let me ask you, ask you a question. Could could we we could produce methamphetamine legally like could we have a source of production in this country well i mean we could because like we have prescription amphetamines already so i mean vivance uh dexedrine i mean those are so all of that grade. stuff could be could be legalized yeah those are prescription versions of it i mean it's not smokable as far as i know but right right well i i, I think it, it's probably going to go roughly the same route then as 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 the opioids, with people like me wanting to emphasize and re-emphasize the message of, look, we're not going to make criminals out of you. We want to stop the thugs from peddling this stuff. But please understand, there's a huge downside of using these drugs. Of course. Right. Like, like I think, like I'm a, I'm a conservative legalizer, if you know what I'm saying, in the sense of, I, I fear the notion that legalization will somehow become equated with approval. Right, right. Like, oh, we've legalized it, so yeah, you can just use it. Like, it's fine. It's, it's no problem. The, the, the problem that drugs cause don't go away because they're legalized, other than we get rid of the problems that are immediately associated with criminalization. That is to say, you know criminal records, uh, incarceration, dragging people through the criminal process, etc. The the harms that drugs can do to people's lives are still going to be very much present. So is there is there any associated is there any associated increase in usage rates when a drug moves from a illegal market to a regulated one that you know? Uh, we, it, it's the evidence that we have seems to suggest no. So if you look at the experience of of the American states that have already legalized cannabis, the evidence seems to suggest that that is not a problem. Certainly the evidence around harmful use, right? Because it's always important to, do, to distinguish between use and harmful use. Yes. If somebody after a, a cannabis, when it's legalized, goes out and says, oh, well, let's 
you know what, I've always been curious. And they smoke a few joints. That contributes to the rise of use. But not harmful use. But, but, But not harmful use. Gotcha. Right. The other thing is also a, a bit of the rise is always going to have to be, will need to be attributed to the shift from legalization, the illegal to legal, right? Now, right now, when we ask people about their use of, uh, certainly until the recent past, cannabis, we were asking them about a criminal activity. That's right. And And even if the survey is anonymous, there's a natural tendency on the part of some people, I think I would include myself, to say, I'm not telling you. Right. Or just to deny, because, they're, you know, it's a criminal activity. Right. So once it becomes legal, that inhibition is removed. So, th- so some of the rise is an, just an artifact of the shift from honest. criminalization right. to, to legalization. So but the other, area, the other piece of evidence that we have that while we have to be concerned about rise in use, the evidence suggests the contrary, is Portugal. Right. So Portugal, about 15 years years ago, decriminalized all drugs. So you and your listeners will know that the differences between decriminalization and regulation is that um, with decriminalization, possession and use by the individual is no longer a criminal offense. But they still have to go to the illicit market to get the drugs. They still have the problems of... um, no taxation, et cetera, et cetera, stuff that I talked about earlier. Except for opiates. I think they have a state-sponsored opiate program in uh, Portugal, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, they may, they, they, they may now have, but certainly at, at the outset, it, it was just basically decriminalization. But in any event, that whole state of affairs has been studied a lot in the 15 years or so since decriminalization. And the, the the rates of usage did not seem to go up. Portugal did not become a drug tourist haven. In other words, people didn't go to Portugal just to use drugs. Uh, consumption amongst kids uh, didn't has not seemed to have been a problem. So I think this this you know worry about well will more people use drugs if we legalize them you know is a concern and it it it, it needs to be guarded against. But the evidence we do have seems to suggest that it, the rates don't go up. They don't go up, and in fact, I think Portugal's a an easy example to show that their usage rates for the most part went down, especially with the opiates. Yes, but. And this is what you may have been talking about a couple of uh, just a moment ago. They also put in place a network of social support. That's right. Yeah. That were meant to help people who otherwise might go the drug route to deal with their problems. And of course, this is a point that I made right at the beginning of our discussion, right? Like you, and, and that you talked about in terms of people traumatized, that, that drug usage often arises because people have very significant issues in their lives. And so one of the ways to deal with that, other than the obvious one of legalization and regulation, is to inquire into why do people feel the need to take drugs and are there things that we can put into in 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 place to support people 
so that they deal with the issues in their lives, but not by taking drugs. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think they even pay for employers to hire. Uh, I think they pay or supplement salaries or something like that as well there, do they not? Yeah, yeah. No, there was all sorts of, of uh, programs that they put in place and incidentally, you know, faced some tough conditions after 2008 and the economic meltdown because Portugal was hit very, very hard. So, you know, some of these programs have kind of gone up and down in the way that, you know, governments need to deal with all sorts of issues, not just drug issues, as important as they are. But the statistics over a period of time tend to make the points that you just talked about. Drug use, if anything, went down and and uh, no drug tourism, no particular great problems with uh, kids, uh, etc. Right. So how do you, so it, it seems like, I mean, after reading, reading your book, um, it really seems like, I mean, we didn't, your book didn't focus spending a lot of time. I mean, it spent some time talking about, you know, caring for the individual, but the, but the most of it was kind of big picture type policies. And it really seemed to come down to simple economics. It, do you think that's why we, we see like Globally, any any uh, government that seems to be making a dramatic change into a more regulated system seems to be coming out of a more conservative leaving, leading government. Have you noticed that or, or found that at all? Well, I don't. I mean, I don't know about that. Trudeau's government, by world standards, would I think be characterized as left of center. Oh, definitely. I guess that's that's an exception, but I mean, like for the opiates, like Portugal had a pretty conservative government at the time they made that switch. I think Norway has a very conservative government. They're doing a switch. Well, yes, but I mean, Norway, Norway's conservatism would make, you know, uh, would pale in comparison to Donald Trump. And I want to get. Oh yeah, gosh. Well, no, no, because you know, I mean, we have a whole international system of drug regulation. Right. And clearly, the Americans under tr- Trump, other than the individual states move towards legalization and regulation of cannabis, is is can be said to be reigniting the drug war. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's an example of a, well, you probably paying him a compliment to suggest that he's only conservative. Who knows what the proper adjective is? But, but you know, he, I mean, look what he's doing with his so-called opioid program that he just announced. He wants to bring back the death penalty for traffickers. Oh, that's insane. And, you know, I have a very, very negative view of those who traffic in drugs. I'm talking about the kingpins now. I'm not talking about the street people. But, you know, anybody who thinks that the, the, the capital punishment is going to solve this is, you know, from an, a dark plan, uh, you know, from the dark side of the moon. And yet that's what Trump is is saying. And, and you know, I mean, even Trump can, can make, cause great problems for us in terms of the legalization and regulation of cannabis, because we're not going to be in, in, in compliant with these inter, international covenants. That's right. And there's there's ways around that, but if if Trump takes out after us, there can be all sorts of problems. And you know, look at the the border. We just heard statements in the last couple of days that say, no, no, if you admit to uh, 
using cannabis at the U.S. border, we may not let you into the country. So, you know, I think that the road ahead is going to be very, very complicated. And I, you know, I, I don't know that I see that the road ahead is going to come from conservative governments. I think there are examples where, you know, I worry about a reigniting of the war on drugs and that the progress that we've made actually will be turned away. But, you know, it's people like you and your listeners that are are, are leading, you know, and I don't want to say the fight. I think, you know, you've, you've talked about your educational efforts, and I think there is a lot to be said for education in this regard, that when you sit down with folks and you discuss these issues and you discuss why you want to move forward with the legalization and regulation, a lot of people can be persuaded. Yeah, they can. One-on-one conversations I've I've rarely had, even people that were very set in their ways against, you know, like or for a morality-based, you know, drugs are bad. If you legalize them, my kids will have more access. And then when you kind of start explaining, well, even just asking them some simple questions about, you know, do you have any addiction in your family? Well, yeah, we do. Do you want us to throw that person in jail? Well, no, I don't. And mm-hmm. and you you just start you can just start kind of asking these questions and and you realize that people are actually uh, as innately compassionate and uh, and I'm I'm going to be talking to uh, Senator Vern White and I'm going to phrase him the the same question but you know it almost seems like our policymakers uh, the politicians at least need to almost pull the selfish side out of out of the voters when it comes to regulated markets. And what I mean by that is, is instead of, you know, always saying, well, we need to be compassionate for this person, we do. But how about instead saying, you know what, this person over there across the street is suffering from a severe addiction. Do you want them to keep breaking into your house and stealing all your shit and selling it at the pawn shop so they can get your supply? No. Right. So why should their addiction have to affect your life your community's life. There's needles in the back alley. There's used condoms because of the sex trade is active as a means of funding this. So you want that to continue? No, you want that out of your yard. And as soon as you start saying, okay, now how can we make that happen? The It seems like the easy, the easiest route is what you're proposing in your book. To me, anyways, it seems like the easiest way to go. Well, yes, uh, while recognizing that, you know, there'll be complications, no, of course. no matter what we do. As, as, uh, as The Economist magazine characterizes legaliz- legalization regulation, it's the least harmful route. It, it, you know, we mustn't think that there won't be complications That's right. and negative aspects. But when you compare them to the situation we have now, whether it's the kingpins making millions and paying no taxes, or whether it's, as you say, needles and condoms and back alleys, you know, it's we need to go a different route. That's we right. need to go a different route. And can it really get any worse? Like by, by making a massive change in policies, can we really make things worse than they are now? Well, I think that, yeah, that that's uh, a, a very interesting uh, question. And certainly with the opioid crisis, I think the answer has to be no. Yeah, I, I like, think so like, too. Like who knew 10 years ago that we would be facing this national disaster related to drugs. Yeah. Well, Bill, uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to 
to talk to us today. Where can people reach you, reach your message? I'll put a link to anything you have up on our show notes for this episode. Where can they get your book? That kind of thing. Well, uh, the book is published by Dundurn. It's available online at, uh, at, you know, Amazon, all the online um, ways of of getting books. And, uh, you know, it is at at, uh, bookstores, although brick and cement, uh, brick and mortar bookstores sadly are disappearing. (laughs) But, uh, you know, uh, so I would say in the usual way that people obtain uh, books and people can follow me on Twitter at W Bogart two and um, they can reach out to me in terms of interviews and so through uh, my web page okay. uh, WA Bogart and there's a way to contact me through my publicist and um, I'm always very open to speaking to uh, the media and uh, public interest groups and uh, thank you so much for this opportunity it's, it's been terrific yeah no problem I got to tell you, I wasn't going to tell you uh, initially because I didn't want to hurt your feelings, but um, I, I'm going to tell you anyways how I came across your book. And it was that uh, my my wife, um, you seem like you have a good sense of humor, so I'll tell you this story. But my, <laughs> my, my wife was at the public library and uh, uh-huh. came came home and she said, hey, I just bought you a book. I'm like, I thought you went to the library. She said, I did. And they were blowing out this book that's right up your alley and it was only 50 cents. <laughs> so... so uh, <laughs> So uh, I'm now I now feel obligated to try to sell as many copies of your book to our listeners as well, possible because I only paid fifty I, cents. I can tell you, my publisher is going to be very angry at me for saying this, but the royalties mean nothing to me. <laughs> oh, uh, no, that you know this that was not the purpose of the book. The purpose right. was to put the message into people's hands and give them access, and and I hope that I've contributed in some way to what is required, which is a national discussion right. on, uh, you know, a really pressing social issue. Great. I think you're doing that, Bill. Keep up the great work. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. When, and hopefully we can speak again. I look forward to that. Okay, take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was uh, Bill Bogart, author of Off the Street and uh, some other books as well. Uh, if you're interested in in understanding the perspective of regulation versus illegal drugs, and and I think Bill's big message is to uh, permit but discourage, and I think uh, that might be the way of the future. So check out his book, Off the Street. I learned a lot, and I'll put links to his contact information and uh, maybe some links as to where you can buy the book in the show notes. So thanks again for listening to this episode of the Say No podcast. As always, follow us on Facebook backslash Say No Org or on Twitter at Say No Org and obviously our website www.saynoorg. Also, please check out our sponsor www.chrismprairies.com. Chrism Prairies is the group that provided funding for this podcast to take place. So check out all the great work they're doing in the field of research and addiction. Take care. Hope you enjoyed the episode.